the Heritage Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Right now, our nation is in the middle of a serious debate about gun violence and mass shootings. A year has passed since a former student killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. What made the shooting at Stoneman Douglas so different than other mass shootings was how quickly students and parents turned their pain into action. Some are pushing for broader restrictions on Second Amendment rights, with new legislation like the recently voted on H.R. 8 that would impose significant burdens on law-abiding citizens by mandating universal background checks. This will be a priority for us in the next Congress, common sense background checks uh, to prevent uh, guns going into wrong hands. But we've still heard little on a number of other issues that weigh into gun violence and mass shootings, like mental health, family breakdown, culture, media, and more. Heritage recently released a series of papers that address these issues. One of them tries to help us understand why the United States is suffering from a crisis of untreated, serious mental illness. During the 1960s and 70s, there was a mass removal of the seriously mental ill from inpatient facilities. It officially began in 1963, when the Kennedy administration implemented the Community Mental Health Act. This gave official credence to a movement that had been slowly developing and that kept developing afterward. The process has an official name, and it's referred to as deinstitutionalization. And between 1955 and 2016, the number of available public psychiatric beds in the United States dropped by 95%. So what led to this movement? Where did all those who truly needed inpatient care go? And what have been some of the consequences? Amy Swear, a legal policy analyst in Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and one of the authors of the report that inspired today's episode, explains. There's really a, a combination of about four things. Uh, there was kind of this growing public consciousness of some really bad conditions in, in certain um, certain uh, mental health facilities that just left a bad taste in, in a, a lot of people's mouths. Uh, but then also along with that, starting in the 1950s, you, you had changes in medicine uh, in, and in psychiatry in, in particular. Um, that was not just a, a general trend of liberalization toward uh, you know, trying to get people out of inpatient facilities, uh, but also the development of new medications that made a lot of doctors rethink their ability to, to adequately treat people in an outpatient setting. Um, and, and so then uh, along with that, you had changes uh, from a fiscal standpoint with Medicaid. Uh, so when Medicaid gets introduced in 1965, it de facto encouraged uh, a lot of, of states to close down uh, inpatient facilities because what Medicaid did uh, was reward states uh, for having outpatient 
facilities by increasing money for every outpatient uh, commitment that you had, uh, but then saying, okay, and if you have inpatient commitments, we're not going to cover that with Medicaid. Um, so, uh, of course, when federal dollars are involved, states start acting accordingly, and it was all of a sudden financially beneficial for states to have fewer inpatient beds to fill up so that they could have more outpatient beds and get more money. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, kind of uh, on the the, the further you know in, into the 1970s, so kind of as this is already in full development, you have a series of uh, court opinions from the United States Supreme Court that, on top of all of this, then made it harder for states to commit people to uh, inpatient mental health treatment. Uh, it, it used to be that states could simply uh, prove that someone had a mental illness and could benefit from treatment, uh, but now they had to prove that the person was a risk of, of danger to themselves or others. Uh, and uh, it also is some of these opinions made it easier for these people, even if they were mentally ill and in inpatient facilities, it made it easier for them to uh, to reject treatment. Uh, and, and so all of this kind of combined into this this grand scheme of, of deinstitutionalization, uh, just all of it together. And I want to make sure that we highlight this number. In your research, you found that as a result of these social and medical and legal changes, that the number of available psychiatric beds in the United States dropped by 95 percent at this time. That's a lot. Yeah, it it is. Um, It's deinstitutionalization as a movement was extremely successful. When you put those four factors together, you had states shutting down inpatient mental health facilities. It wasn't financially beneficial. Uh, it was hard to to do from a legal standpoint. Um, and, and it just, I mean, there's no other way to put it except that it, that movement as a movement was extremely successful. So what do medical health budgets actually look like in states right now? Uh, so state state budgets, especially since the, the downturn in, in 2008, 2009, uh, the, States have been cutting their budgets across the board, uh, but one of the places in particular that a lot of states have tried to, to cut their budgets is in mental health spending. Um, so not only have you seen uh, over the last couple of decades that dramatic decrease in, in inpatient infrastructure, uh, but then on top of that, just between 2009 and 2012, uh, states cumulatively cut about $4.3 billion from their mental health budgets. Um, you know, some states more than others, uh, but generally just across the board, you saw states slashing uh, mental health budgets, not just for inpatient commitments, but also for outpatient commitments, which were supposed to pick up the burden of all of those individuals who, who no longer had inpatient beds. Are there studies that show what we should actually have? Yeah. Uh, so most policy experts, when, when they talk about uh, a minimum number of inpatient beds that a, a population needs, um, they, they generally recommend between 40 to 60 inpatient beds per 100,000 people. Uh, and in, in most European um, OECD countries, uh, it, it's well above that. Uh, in the United States, unfortunately, um, as of 2016, the average state provided only 11.7 beds uh, per 100,000 people. I think the national average is a bit higher than that when you include the federal beds, uh, but it's still well below uh, the, the minimum that's recommended by policy experts. So it's sad, actually. What started out with the best of intentions actually still hurt our society because the alternatives weren't adequate. 
And we sort of created a vacuum and our mentally ill are either on the streets or in jails. And, and that leads me to my next question, which is in your report, you mentioned that having fewer inpatient services has been associated with higher crime. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so as you said, it's, it's important to recognize that the movement of deinstitutionalization started with the best of intentions. Uh, the problem was that there weren't adequate numbers of outpatient facilities and community facilities in place. Uh, and so all of a sudden you had large numbers of, of very severely mentally ill people without any sort of infrastructure for treatment. And, and all of a sudden communities are dealing with this influx. Um, and the burden on communities has has been uh, horrific. Uh, it, it's been a very large burden, not just from homelessness, which homelessness as a concept did not really exist in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, but uh, w when you look at studies that have really looked at the results of deinstitutionalization, um, there have been studies uh, that show strong indications that the dramatic rise in violent crime that we saw as, as a nation during the 1980s and 1990s was in large part an effect of deinstitutionalization. So you had this massive influx of, of individuals with serious mental health needs um, who be, became violent when they were untreated uh, and who were committing other crimes uh, you know, as a, as a result of, of homelessness or um, not having uh, their needs being adequately met. Then when you start seeing this decline again in, in violent crime during the 1990s and, and early 2000s, a lot of that is actually attributable, unfortunately, uh, to these mentally ill individuals being uh, essentially reinstitutionalized just back into jails and prisons. And so there's this direct correlation between the number of severely mentally ill people out on the streets uh, and some of these rises in violent crime. So in short, the burden of dealing with the individuals um, has fallen on law enforcement as opposed to mental health care professionals. Yeah, that's that's uh, unfortunately exactly right. Uh, there's been a tremendous increase in uh, the the amount of, of dealings with law enforcement, with mentally ill individuals, to the point where many law enforcement agencies are are bringing on board full-time psychiatrists and, and case managers because they're just seeing the same individuals, most of the time for nuisance crimes, just over and over and over. Um, and uh, it's it's bad for people who are mentally ill, uh, dealing you know primarily with officers who are well-intentioned but not trained in, in psychiatric needs. And it's also dangerous for, for officers. Uh, so studies that have looked at violent confrontations, whether it's assaults on officers or officer-involved shootings, um, a significant percentage of, uh, of these incidents are related to untreated mental illness. We'll be right back after this short break. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. Amy, tell me more about your research and what you found when it comes to individuals in our jails who are mentally ill. So recent studies that, that have looked at the proportion of mentally ill inmates in the United States um, have found absolutely stunning results um, that anywhere between 37 percent and 44 percent, so about one third of our nation's uh, state and federal inmates have been told by a mental health practitioner uh, at, at some point in the past that they suffered from a mental illness. Um, so, so not just, oh, they might be exhibiting signs or they're self-diagnosing, but have had a mental health practitioner tell them that they suffer from a mental illness that needs to be treated. Um, and that's vastly more significant than what you would see in the average population. 
um, which is about one to two percent of, of individuals who are dealing with serious mental illness on yeah, a that's given day. Alarming. Yeah. So, what can we do? Well, there's a number of things uh, that that we can do. Uh, I think. One thing we have to keep in mind is no one wants to say, well, we need to swing the pendulum back to, to you know, the, the 1940s and 1950s where anyone with any sign of mental illness needs to be locked up in an inpatient facility for the rest of their lives. Um, but we, we do need to start admitting that there is a place in society for inpatient mental health treatment, um, especially as... Uh, as psychiatric beds of last resort if, for when people are in the midst of a mental health crisis uh, and they need that emergency treatment, they need a place to stabilize. And unfortunately, right now, we simply as a nation do not have an adequate number of beds. Uh, and so you're seeing uh, essentially log jams of, of wait lists for people um, who go in and out of ERs with mental health, mental health crises, kind of get emergency stabilization treatment, but then there's nowhere for them to go. Um, and so they're just kind of left on their own on, on wait lists or kind of given inadequate outpatient treatment, but they don't follow up or they don't understand their illness. And there, there really isn't um, a, any sort of way of, of keeping them from deteriorating again. And so one of the things that, that states can do uh, to combat some of the effects of deinstitutionalization is to ensure that they are funding enough public psychiatric beds um, for these types of individuals so that you're not seeing these long wait lists, so that you're not seeing this, this spiral down crisis. And then another thing that states can do is enforce their existing mental health commitment procedures. And so as I mentioned, in the 1970s, there's a series of cases uh, that, that made it harder for states. But even within uh, that, there, there's some leeway with what states can do and the language that they can use uh, to facilitate mental health commitments. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about is how states can can work within the existing framework to change that language and ensure that they're not making it harder than necessary on themselves to ensure that that their citizens who are in desperate need of mental health treatment uh, can can have courts order them to that treatment. And lastly, we need to make sure that, because as conservatives, a lot of times when we're talking about throwing around money and, and funding things, we are for, for limited government. Um, but it's it's important that when we're talking about states investing um, in in public health initiatives, such as investing in, in public psychiatric facilities, um, ensuring a sufficient number of beds, uh, these are upfront costs, yes, um, but they may seem daunting. But when you look at it in, in terms of the, the long-term costs of shifting uh, the burden of housing and treatment of severely mentally ill people to the criminal justice system, to the emergency medical systems, uh, not to mention the, the human and economic costs associated with untreated serious mental illness, uh, homelessness, um, you know, petty crimes, things of that nature, uh, it, it really is something that, that states should consider investing in and not slashing these budgets, um, because these are some of the problems that are the underlying causes of so much social angst and, and, and ailments that we see in society right now. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. Tim will be on next week. We'll see you then. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www 
www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift.